All right, take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 14. We've been in a series on encouragement together, the power of words. Acts chapter 14, if you want to turn there. I just want to remind you again of the heart that God has for people who are grieving, struggling, their hearts are broken. Psalm 34, 17 and 18, when the righteous cries for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God is near to us in our pain and in our grief. And that's the idea of being discouraged. It's the idea of being crushed in spirit. Look at Acts chapter 14. Here's another place that this idea of encouragement pops up. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Not all at once. They made these stops on the way back. Look at what they were doing. Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Look how well this fits with what was preached this morning. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I am thankful for the people that God has used in my life to strengthen my soul and to encourage me to continue in the faith. We need that encouragement whether we're 12 years old or 32 years old or 52 or 72 or more than that, don't we? So we've been talking about encouragement. Life can be rough. And the idea that we're kind of working around in this uh, series is this, God's word changes me. Through me, it can change others too. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to feel totally prepared. But God's called you to use your words to encourage others. So we've been doing a case study each week. So last week's case study was, what do we say to someone who is crushed in spirit? They are alone and afraid. And the, the way we're doing this is saying, well, what does God say to people in that situation? Right? Because that can guide and help us to know what we should say, right? So does anybody remember from last week, we talked about Elijah was alone, he was afraid, he was fearing for his life, he thought he was the only person left who was following God faithfully. What did God say to him? Three things. Anybody remember? You are not alone. Now, God didn't lead with that. I think that's helpful, right? He finished with that, but he said, Actually, you're not alone. There's 7,000 other people in your immediate area who are following me. So, so that's just not correct. You may feel that way, but you're not alone. By the way, that's one reason we need to gather together. It reminds us that we're not alone. What else did God say to him? You, you're a part of my plan. I have a plan for you. I have things for you to do. God actually um, doesn't answer Elijah's exact concern first. He actually says, hey, the next thing that I want you to do is... Right? So when people are feeling alone and afraid and want to withdraw, it's actually great to remind them that God has a plan for them and he's actually put you in this moment to do something meaningful. Moms, God's put you in this moment to be a mom to your kids, even when you want, you're alone and afraid and you want to withdraw. Right? Employee, God has work for you to do. It's meaningful. Sometimes as pastors, you just want to crawl in a hole somewhere and withdraw. God has work for us to do. It's important. We're part of his plan. Don't forget that. What's the last thing? So I have, God has a plan for you. You're not actually alone. 
And what was the middle thing? Elijah was afraid for his life, but God actually told him something else. You're safe in my care. You are safe in God's protection and his care. Now, that doesn't mean that, like the story we heard today, people don't die what we would consider to be prematurely. But, but as long as God has work for you to do, you are safe in his care. There, there's no place you could be safer. He protects, he provides, he will care for you. No matter what other people are saying is the idea. And that was the message that God shared. Well, if we were to go to 1 Thessalonians 4, let's do that. 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll jump around a little bit this morning. What do we say to someone, and in this case, this is specific to a Christian, what do you say to someone who is deeply grieved by death? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And again, the, the answer is, what does God say to a Christian who is deeply grieved by loss, by someone who has died? 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18. But we do not want you to be informed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So, so this verse divides people who are grieving into two categories, doesn't it? What are the two categories of people who are grieving? People who are grieving without hope. Does that happen at times? There is grief without hope. Now we can, we can sympathize, we can um, grieve with them at their loss, but there are times that we grieve without hope. And the other group is the group that God is addressing here. People who grieve but actually do have hope. So that's why I say this is specific to Christians when you're talking to them. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's a direct command to encourage and say this. It's about as straightforward as it gets. What do I say in this situation? So what do you say to someone who's grieving a loss when it's a Christian who's grieving the loss and a Christian who has died? Right? That's the situation. What do you say? What does God say to them? You will see them again. What else does he say? You'll be with them. And ultimately, you'll be with the Lord. Right? What else does he say? We're going to cycle around this same idea, right? In some different ways, because that's really the heart of what's being said here. What will happen to them? They will, they will be with the Lord. Sure. They will be raised. There's a resurrection coming. They will rise again. You, you know what this whole section is saying? Death is not the end. I, 
I had a pastor that I served with in Colorado who used to always say um, that at a funeral of a Christian, it wasn't goodbye, it was see you later. That's true. Now, now does that mean there is no pain? No, does that mean that in some ways it does feel like the end? Yes. But we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. You say, well, I just don't know what to say in that situation. This is what you should say. Now, it doesn't have to be the only thing you say. And, and, and be wise in the spirit that you say it, right? If I come up to Randy and he's just lost, you haven't lost anyone close to you, like, okay. I Sometimes I do those things, it's real bad. If I go up to Randy and I found out that he had just lost someone he deeply cared about who knew the Lord, and I came up to Randy and I'm like, I, you're fine, dude, this is not the end. Okay. No. <laughs> Speak the truth in love. Right? I can also say things that aren't, that aren't this, like, hey, I'm sorry. Sorry for your loss. If there's anything we can do, let us know. But I know you're thankful just like I'm thankful that there's hope, that we know this isn't the end. And we know that because of Jesus. He died. He rose again. He's coming back. We have hope. Okay. What do we say? Because Jesus died and rose, so will we. Jesus will come back, and we will be with him forever. And, and what this passage is saying as well is, none of us are going to miss this. If you're alive when Jesus comes back, you're going. You're second in line, but you're going. And if you're dead when Jesus comes back, you're going. Okay, this is not the end. We talked last week about the nature of encouragement, that God's words are powerful and that he is working with us, right? So how do we encourage each other? Three ways this morning. We encourage others with gospel words. Go back. Or actually, let's go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. It's always humbling to me how God dovetails our class with what Danny's preaching. But Danny really talked about this clearly this morning, and so I won't belabor it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The most life-changing words that we can share with anyone is the truth about our sin and Jesus as our Savior. It really is that simple. And by the way, the need for that truth doesn't end once someone has trusted Christ. Those truths keep on encouraging your soul, don't they? But for someone who doesn't know Jesus, this is the truth that they need and they need and they need some more. And for those of us who do know Jesus, this is the truth that we need and we need and we need some more. Any news that says you can become right with God through your own self-effort is actually bad news. It's not true. And any news that says it doesn't matter if you're right with God, in fact, there might not even be a God, is bad news. It's not true. But we need to be opening our mouths and sharing the good news. The good news that even though we're hopeless sinners, God sent his only son to be our savior.
I remember talking to a Christian in our church in Indiana. And if I introduced you, it's kind of funny. Um, this couple, their names were Doug and Bridget. So that's funny because we actually have a family attending now that are Doug and Bridget. So uh, I remember Doug. And Doug's a very quiet guy. He was a school janitor. Probably still is. And um, he, his 100% of the people doing 100% of the work at our church was he would come faithfully to clean the gym floor with the floor machine. And he actually knew how to run it and fix it. And he did a great job. But Doug was very quiet, very hardworking, but very much kept to himself. And so we were talking one day, and I said, Doug, what is God doing in your life? He goes, well, I'm trying to, to be the dad that God's called me to be and just trying to be faithful in my family. And he goes, but, but through the preaching that I've been hearing recently, I've just realized that I have this one coworker that I just need to talk to about Jesus. And Doug is like, and I'm terrified. But I know it's what God wants me to do. He goes, and, and I don't know how it's going to go. Right? Isn't that how we all are? But Doug was just like, this is just, I know that that's what God wants me to do. Those are the words that God has called us to share. And I don't know who your coworkers are or your friends or where God is opening doors for you. But make sure that you are sharing gospel words. This is really a big topic, but I want to simplify it into kind of two big groups. There are wise words that come directly from God and his word, right? I mean, our Bible is not just, um, you're a sinner, Jesus came to save you, he's coming again. True? Like, our Bibles cover a wide range of topics where God has said in his wisdom, these are principles and commands and truths you need to know. Can you think of some topics that the Bible covers that are outside the immediate realm of sin, you know, salvation, and glory? What, is it, what does the Bible talk to us about practically? Friends, the kind of companions that are wise and foolish. Yeah, I mean, friends who are constantly recruiting you to do bad things are bad friends. Don't go that way, it went bad. I was reading Proverbs the other day. They set a trap for themselves, and then they fall in it, Right? What else does it speak to us about? Marriage. There's lots on marriage in God's word. Absolutely. Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Right? It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop. No, okay. <laughs> Some of you are tracking. If not, Proverbs, you'll see it. What else does the Bible talk to us really practically about? Money. It's actually a topic that Jesus was not afraid to discuss. By the way, I hope it's not one that, one that we're not afraid to discuss here. It's become taboo in churches to talk about money. We just, we miss God's heart on that then. And we shouldn't lord it over, right? But what we do with our money, the Bible tells us, indicates where our heart is. And, and, and if you read your entire Bible, you'll see time and time and time again, honor God with the first fruits of your money. Not when you get to the end of the month and all the bills are paid and you have $25.16 left. Then what you basically said is, God, you can have my leftovers. Right? Honor God with your money. What else does the Bible talk about practically? Our yeah, our speech. There's a lot about that. About honesty, right? About gossip, about um, healthy words and destructive words, building people up, tearing people down. What else does it talk about practically? Parenting, right? There's a lot of wisdom on parenting in God's word. John, you got one? 
Sure, yeah. What does the course of history look like? And, and how did people behave 3,000 years ago? And how did that end up? And by the way, those people weren't Neanderthals. They were real people with real brains and real problems and real struggles and real successes. There's lots of wisdom there. Right? So we could go on and on and on about these topics, couldn't we? But does the Bible speak exhaustively on every topic? No. The Bible is sufficient. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. If this was the only book you had and there was no other book ever written, you would be fine. And this is the only one that's alive and powerful and written by God himself. So that's stage one in wisdom. And so sometimes when you're speaking to someone to encourage them, you can come directly with something out of God's word. That is stop one. That is the best place to go. But sometimes we limit the idea of encouragement to, well, if you're not coming from a Bible verse or directly from a Bible principle, then it's just some sort of, you know, personal outside encouragement. Here's the thing. Who is the all-wise being in the universe? God is. If you know Jesus as your Savior, and you are growing in your knowledge of God, guess what you are learning to become? Wise. And so even though that knowledge is growing, and even though it's imperfect, when Titus 2 says older women... Train the younger women how to be what God has called them to be in their families. It certainly starts with what God has said. But it doesn't have to end there. We've talked to the Brooks quite a bit because their son Luke, who just flew out of town, um, Kristen has some great stories about Luke as a very small child. But apparently he was very strong-willed. And I'm like, oh, have one. I mean, my son Timothy went into the garage yesterday, and I was packing up, and uh, he was, we were packing up the car, we are going to go camping for a few days um, in the snow, apparently, it'd be great, um, but uh, Colleen comes out, and she goes, where's Tim? I'm like, he's right around the back of the car, packing up. She goes, are you sure about that? That's bad. <laughs> I'm like, I think so, and I step out on our apartment complex, and it kind of runs down the row of garages, but it's also a thoroughfare for cars. And Tim is probably a hundred yards down the thoroughfare. I'm like, Timothy, come back here. He does this. Boom, takes off. <laughs> right, stop had the effect of go. Anybody else been in that world? And he's in the stage right now where he will talk back the same thing you told him and say he's not going to do it. Right? And occasionally he'll get so frustrated with a no that he'll hit. And, and I've been thankful as I spend time with the Brooks to say, do you have any wisdom for that? And Chris doesn't go, yes, let me share with you Proverbs 16. <laughs> she'll share with me biblical principles, but sometimes she'll say, can I just give you something practical that God used in our family? Here. Tim was going through some asthma stuff a while ago, and I got a text from John, and they had been through that with their son, Rob, and they were like, could we talk to you guys? We'd be happy to encourage you through that situation. God has placed us together in community so that when we wrestle through a hard job decision, or maybe a point in our marriage that's really a struggle, 
or our parenting or our finances. I mean, somebody that I used to work with who was really wise financially taught me a long time ago, budget your income low and your expenses high and you'll probably turn out all right. There's no chapter and verse for that, but it's wise. You say, well, I could bring it all the way back. You probably could. But don't be afraid to share wisdom. Start with God's wisdom. Don't be afraid to share what God has taught you. Words of wisdom. And lastly, and this one's really interesting, the, the book that I've been reading alongside this study mentions praying words as encouraging words. Now that's interesting, and here's why. Have you ever apologized to someone and said, well, all I can do for you right now is pray? You ever done that? Sometimes we do that, don't we? Why do we say that? Well, I say, well, Dave, there's no, I, I mean, there's nothing I can do for you, but I can pray for you. Why do we say that? What feels like you're doing something? Yeah, when you can tangibly do something for someone. When you can tangibly bring a meal. When, when you can tangibly sit at a hospital bed. When you can tangibly give some money. When you can, now the Bible commends all of that. That's all good. And this feels indirect, doesn't it? When you spend time praying for someone, it feels like you're praying to God to help them. And if you could just help them, that would be more direct. But isn't that interesting? That we, are, we can be more committed to our own ability to help a situation than to the God of the universe and his ability. Yeah, it's our control. It's our desire to be independent. One of our core values is fervent prayer. Listen to this at Gospel Hope Church. We believe that Jesus Christ teaches and models a pattern of fervent prayer. Just as the early church devoted itself to prayer, so we commit to being a congregation devoted to prayer. We see this in the early church in Acts 2. We affirm by word and practice the necessity of prayer, believing the promise of God that such praying has great power as it is working, James chapter 5. Fervent prayer will be a part of our lives individually and corporately as we gather in small groups and assemble for the purpose of worship each Lord's day. You want to know something interesting about that core value? What number core value is that, Danny? Nope, dead last. Do you remember why it's last? Here's why. We took a lot of these core values from Gospel Grace and worked with the leadership team here at Trinity and crafted them together. And then we realized there's no core value for prayer. And then we said, there needs to be a core value for prayer. You know why I share that with you? Isn't that our human nature? I mean, I've had a number of people come and say, Where, what are we going to do on the building? Hey, what's planned for the summer? All good things. But showing up 15 minutes early to hop in a back room to pray? I haven't had anybody come to me and say, Matt, man, the life of this church, the power of this church, the, that prayer's got to be at the heart of what we do. How are we going to commit to pray? And you know what I think that speaks to? Myself included? Our own independence and our own self-sufficiency 
And if we just work hard enough and plan well enough. Prayer is not an add-on, and it's certainly no waste of time. I mean, when Jesus wanted to say, this is what my house is like, where did he start? He started with prayer. So even though I'm not speaking directly to someone to say, let me encourage you in this way, as I'm praying for them, I am using my words and ultimately asking God to do stuff only he can do. And isn't that a good thing? Isn't that often a better thing than me trying to figure out how I can directly using our words to pray. So how can we encourage each other? Gospel words, wise words, praying words. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this opportunity to encourage, that you are a fellow worker with us, that you've called us to encourage one another. And, and God, you know my heart that even bringing up the topic of prayer is not a desire to make any of us feel guilty but it's just a reminder that we so often neglect or push to the bottom of the list or get to it when we have time. A, a, something that you have graciously given us that is more powerful than we could even imagine. God, you know how to encourage hearts and how to provide for people in a way that we don't even know. And I pray for us together, whether it's in our community groups or in our homes or here corporately together, that you would build in this place a passion for prayer. Not because prayer is a thing in and of itself, but because you are the thing. Because you are our Father. Because you delight to give good gifts. Because you love to show your power in ways that take all the credit away from us. Lord, please forgive us for trying to do lots of things that get credit for ourselves. But would you build in us a, a place that we are, are filled with prayer, with wise words, and with gospel words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.